So we've been 15 weeks into this study of Ephesians, and uh, we've taken it slow, um, intentionally. We, uh, we've just been looking at one or two or three verses at a time, kind of trying to unpack the depths of what's here, because Ephesians is a deep and real uh, and powerful book because it's written for perhaps some of Paul's most uh, educated and most well-taught disciples, right? The church in Ephesus or the small gathering of churches in Ephesus, because most likely there were many cell or house churches that sort of met in and around the the region or city of Ephesus, were some of the most well-taught, right? We've talked about this quite a bit at length. Paul spent three years in Ephesus teaching on a daily basis. I mean, if you could sit under Paul's teaching for three years on a daily basis, I feel like you'd have a pretty good grasp on God's movement, on what he was doing, on Paul's role, on God's redemptive plan. And so his letter that he writes from prison, uh, under house arrest in Rome, waiting to go on trial in front of Caesar, right, is this sort of culmination and a great reminder of exactly who they are as the church. And he talks to them deeply and he talks to them directly. And so we've been unpacking it sort of at a slow pace and kind of going, how do we apply some of these truths to our lives? But essentially, we've come to this place in chapter 3 now that we're starting chapter 3, where Paul is wrapping up this great truth, which he calls the great mystery, this, this great mystery that God has now revealed to us, the body of Christ, that which Paul is actually called to be the voice of, the administrator of, the steward of. He is the voice of this great mystery that God is revealing to us that demonstrates, right, all that he's talked about in chapter 2, which is that the Gentiles and the Jews have been drawn together under Christ into one family of God, that God is making a brand new people. And the church is the base of that new people. It is the holy temple, as we talked about last week. Paul's going to open that up to us this morning, open that metaphor a little deeper, and remind us of who we are. Because the truth is, us gathered here this morning, I'm 99.9% sure that all of us are part of that Gentile inclusion. I don't think there are any that I know, at least any of us that are uh, genetically Jewish, that we would trace our lineage all the way back. But for the most part, all of us are part of the great Gentile inclusion, that God has grafted us into this. It's what Paul calls the great mystery. It's going to be a little deep this morning, but I'm going to explain it in a way that I hope is super simple so that we can get it, because what Paul's saying is really true, and it's actually really true for you and me. This actually is the gospel of grace, and it's our story. So this is not the story for the Ephesians alone. This is the story for you, and uh, that's why I think it's so remarkable. So we're going to look at the first six verses this morning, and then uh, we'll wrap up the uh, second part next week. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to look at this great mystery, this this revelation of God in which Paul is called to to administer, to steward, and how that applies to us. So let's take a moment. We'll pray quickly since we did quite a bit of it a second ago, and we'll ask God just to kind of open and teach our hearts. So let's do that, and then we'll dive right in. Lord, joints and marrow, soul and spirit, that it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. That is your word. Actually, the Greek word, as we say each week almost, is theoponestos, which actually means the breath of God. The scripture is God-breathed. So an encounter with it is an encounter with you. We do not believe it is some guidebook or kind of some handbook for our life by which we get to pick and choose the chapters that we love. The truth is it contains the entire redemptive history of God revealed to us through the person of Jesus Christ. And so you speak to us through it, and therefore we don't take it lightly. Lord, when it says something challenging, we dive in to figure out what that means. We don't dismiss it. And so, Lord, this morning, as we deal with some challenges and some great truths, I pray that you would just teach our hearts. 
You are the revealer of truth. Take a moment in your heart this morning, just before we really get into God's word, and just ask him to teach you. God, teach my heart. Show me something new. Whatever you need to whisper to the Lord this morning, just, just do that. Take a moment, pray for someone behind you, in front of you, or pray for the people around you. We do this each week. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. We want to care enough about the spiritual growth of the people we sit around, even if we don't know their name, to see God move in their life. Everything unfolds here on Sunday morning is most literally not about you. So be in the habit of praying for other people. Pray for that person beside you this morning. Lord, as we open your word, teach our hearts. Instruct us where things are cloudy. Enlighten us where we're confused. Give us clarity where we need clarity and send us out where we need to be sent. We ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So as Paul spent all of chapter 2 doing two things, he spent the first part of chapter 2 reminding us that we were all dead in our sin, that we were all on equal ground, whether you're Jew, whether you're Gentile, we were all alienated from God, the sin in our life had killed us, and we were hopeless without Jesus. All the first part of chapter 2, we have to have Christ. The second part of chapter 2 was saying that once we are introduced to a relationship with Jesus, we are most literally knit together in one new people, that God was making a brand new family. He was taking not just the Jews or not just the Gentiles, but he was drawing them all into God's people, and this was God's great redemptive work, that he was making a new people, a people that were once two into one. And if you want to hear all the history of that and kind of how that works, I encourage you to go back and listen. You can jump on our website or you can go to iTunes or whatever and listen to the podcast. We went pretty deep into all that. But that's what chapter 2 is doing. And now in chapter 3, Paul is actually beginning a prayer that he stops and says, wait a minute, I don't know that you fully got it. And he's going to go for 12 verses, making sure they've got it. And then he's going to jump back into that prayer. So we're going to look at the first part of that in verses 1 through 6, and you'll see right where it is. So for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles... Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight of the mystery, which was not made known to men in other generations that has now been revealed by the Spirit of God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is through the gospel the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members of one body, and sharers together in the promises of Christ Jesus. Now, that is super confusing and wordy. I get it. But we're going to break it down. Um, but before we kind of jump in there and I tell you a bit about that prayer, I want to give you a little bit of a, of a, maybe a simplistic understanding of this idea of mystery. Because when I first was reading through all this, Paul uses this idea of mystery a lot in Ephesians, but he really brings it in here. He talks about this great mystery that is now revealed. And that word kind of messes us up a little bit because it's this thing, mystery for us, is this thing that's sort of unknown, right? And you got to understand mystery in these terms. Right now, as you sit here today, with the full gospel revealed, with the Bible open in your lap, God's perfect redemptive story, there is no more mystery. Everything has been made known and made, made clear in Christ. So from Genesis through Revelation, through the act of saving, completed work of Christ on the cross, there is no more mystery. Everything in Christianity is open. It is an open secret. However, for generations pre-Christ, 
God's work in the world was a mystery. For generations pre-completion of Christ on the cross, God's movement in the world was actually hard to understand and fully follow. Now, if you read the Old Testament, you will see glimpses of what God's doing. It has the imprint of Christ all over it, but that was not fully revealed how it would work out. There's evidences in the Psalms and Isaiah and Daniel and these great messianic texts that a Savior's coming, but as we know, that was not fully understood. In fact, it wasn't even fully understood in the time of Jesus. There were its allusions to it, but God's redemptive plan for humanity was a mystery. That is until the time of the apostles. So if you think about it like this, pre-Christ, pre-generations, God's movement was clouded in mystery. We were seeing nuggets of what he was doing, promises through the prophets, but God's redemptive plan with the Israelites to get us to the place where we are now with the church, well, it was, it was mysterious. It was unknown. Then Christ is, lives and he's crucified and raised, and Paul, the apostle, is given this charge to tell the world that this great mystery is revealed. And you know what that great mystery is? He's going to tell us directly in verse 6. But the great mystery is this, that God's redemptive plan was to, through Christ, bring all people that were non-Jewish and the Jewish people, all of humanity, that when we profess faith in Christ, we become one new people. That God was moving to Jesus' death and resurrection to save humanity. That's the mystery that's now revealed. The great mystery of the gospel is that God was always at work to save humanity. That through his timing, through God's people and the kings and the prophets and the judges and all these things were all leading to Christ. That through Christ's death and resurrection, that whoever professes faith in him, Jew or Gentile, is not, they are not just saved. They are saved and members of one new household, one new people group, one new family of God. That is the mystery that Paul's talking about. So as we unpack all this today, what you want to understand is that mystery is no longer a mystery. That's what Paul's referring to. But for that first generation of people, this is mind-blowing. They don't have Scripture in its whole totality. The letters of the New Testament have yet to be written. Christ's death on the cross is extremely fresh and new. Paul is putting all these building blocks into place, and this mystery is like a slow haze that is being lifted over or off the heads and eyes of people. They're coming to understand it slowly and in real time. That's why we've been talking over the past weeks about how crazy this was for the Jewish people to hear that the Gentiles, who were forever for thousands of years, were not even allowed in the same place of worship. We didn't even walk through Samaria because to touch one of them was so dirty. And now they're my brother, like in the most literal sense. This mystery of God, this great gospel of grace has opened this floodgate to this one new people group. Now, that's just an aside. Keep that in the back of your mind. This is what Paul says, verse 1. He's getting ready to pray for the whole church. This is what he does. He basically says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of the Gentiles. And in verse 14, you're going to see this. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. So he starts that saying, For this reason, I'm going to pray. And then he stops. And then for 12 verses, he goes on this little sidebender about how he wants them to make sure they understand who he is and what he's saying, because this is, this is an organic letter. He's going to actually pick up that prayer in verse 14. But he starts by saying this, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ for the sake of the Gentiles. Now, we know that Paul wrote this letter from Rome under house arrest, waiting on trial to go before Caesar. And we know that he was actually put there, not by the Jews, but by the Gentiles. We read the book of Acts. In fact, we studied the entire thing verse by verse. Paul was under house arrest because the Gentiles were livid that he was messing up most of their way of life. 
So he was standing trial for his life before Caesar. He wrote the book of Ephesians, the book of Colossians, um, the book of Philippians, and the letter to Philemon, all under the same house arrest. And in every single one of those letters, he talks about, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He wears it as this great badge of honor. But in this book to the Ephesians, he adds one other line, right, that's a kind of a throw in there that's not in any of the others. And if you caught it, you'll hear it, right? He says, I, Paul, right, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. In other words, I'm not a prisoner of Caesar. Are you kidding me? That guy couldn't hold me down. I'm a prisoner of Christ. In other words, it's a joy to be here because I'm actually being held here by Christ because I'm obedient to his will. So he says, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Why? For the sake of the Gentiles. Now, why does Paul throw that in there and all the other letters he doesn't say it at all? He doesn't even mention anything about the Gentiles. He basically just says, I'm in chains for Christ. Well, think about what's unfolding. All of chapter 2, right, Paul has been telling the Gentiles how he has literally, right, they they have literally been grafted into the family of God. So think about what he's telling them. He's essentially saying, I, Paul, who am a prisoner of Christ, meaning great joy, I'm in prison. I am in prison for your sake or on your behalf. Now, think about who Paul is, right? Remember who he tells us he is back in Acts, that he is the the Hebrew of Hebrews. He is the Jew of Jews, if you will. He was born and circumcised on the eighth day and educated in the best places. He was the up-and-coming Pharisee of Pharisees, probably most likely to be in line as one of the high priests of the Sanhedrin. He was a huge deal before he met Jesus. And then he becomes this ambassador for Christ by which now is shipwrecked and beaten and waiting in prison and that whole life is gone, but he was the Jew of the Jews. And what he's basically saying to the Gentiles is, as the Jew of the Jews, the Hebrew of Hebrews, person that is part of this great Hebrew family, not only are you grafted into this family, but I'm willing to be imprisoned for you as my brothers and sisters. This is an act by which he declares, look, even though the Gentiles put me here, I'm here on behalf of you because I care and I love you deeply as part of God's family. It was an inclusion comment that the gospel, this great unifying thing of the gospel, means that Paul would go to prison, not just to defend the Jews who were God's people, but to defend the Gentiles who were also God's people. That Paul was willing to die to demonstrate that this great grafting together, this great mystery by which the Jews and the Gentiles are now brought together, Paul will go to prison for And if you're reading this letter in a context of a small church and there's eight people that are culturally and uh, genetically or heritage Jewish and there's a bunch of Gentiles that are Greek and Roman or whatever and you're all gathered together and they're reading this letter and Paul's basically going, we're all one and I'd go to prison for any one of you. None of you are second class. None of you are second class Christians or citizens. None of you should be looked down upon. We are all one. Paul was living out the great mystery. So, side note. So we're seeing here that Paul is this ambassador, this steward of God's great mystery. This is the role that Paul's been given. So he's willing to go to jail for him. And he tells him that. Like, I'll do that. You would matter that much to me. Because you got to imagine these Jewish people are like, so now we're, like, we're allowed to go in. Remember, there was a wall that separated them from even going into the outer court of the temple. We talked about it a few weeks ago. The Sorek kept them away by penalty of death. Now that's gone and we can worship together. How do we know that's true? Paul says, I'll go, I will suffer in prison so that you believe this. So he says, surely 
You have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already told you about and written briefly. So Paul says, listen, the guy that's standing in jail for you, by you, right? I want you to know my role. I have been given the administration of this great mystery, the stewarding of this great mystery that has been revealed to me. I didn't make it up. God showed it to me and told me to go and tell the world. So Paul's saying, my role, this is the reason I'm telling you this, is because this is the entire task that God gave me. Now, do you remember when God gave Paul this task? Do you remember Acts 9? Paul is charged by, uh, with a letter from the high priests to go and serve notice to all the Christian communities that they either need to cease worshiping this one God or be imprisoned or killed. And he has a letter from the high priest to imprison anyone that goes against him, and he's got a band of religious people around him, and he's headed down to Damascus, right? Acts chapter 9. And what happens? God shows up in the form of this brilliant flash of light, throws him to the ground, essentially. Paul goes blind, freaks out. And he said, Lord, what's happening? Why are you persecuting me? Or why are you doing all this? And Jesus, in this great voice, says, Paul, this is me, Jesus, who you are actually persecuting. Meaning, if you're persecuting the church, you're persecuting me. Now, you're going to follow my instructions. You're going to get up, and you're going to go down into town, and you're going to meet a guy, and you're going to, uh, uh, on Straight Street, and he's got a house. His name's Judas. You're going to wait for him with him there. And I'm going to show up, and I'm going to bring you someone to tell you what you'll do next. So Paul wanders his way down there, led now and blind by these officials. And then God shows up to this disciple, apostle, guy named Ananias, who we really don't know much about, but we know he's part of one of the community. And, and Paul, God shows up to him in this vision and says, Ananias, listen, I got a task for you. There's this guy named Saul, right, who's uh, been breathing out murderous threats about all my people. I want you to go and lay hands on him. Do you remember the encounter, Acts chapter 9? It's pretty awesome. I'll read it to you just because it's pretty cool. He says this. <clears throat> he says, yes, Lord, I, uh, I've heard of him. Um, he says, I want you to go down to Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man named Tarsus named uh, Saul. He's been praying. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place hands on him and restore his sight. This is what God says to Ananias. And Ananias says, uh, hey, Lord, uh, I've heard a lot about this guy and the harm that he's been doing and all the saints that are at danger in Jerusalem and He's coming here with the authority of the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. So he's going, I, I hear what you're saying. Got it. Um, I'm not sure you're fully aware of what's going on, so I'm going to clue you in. Paul, Saul's a pretty awful dude. In fact, he's got authority to arrest us all and really kill us. So if you want to maybe not send anybody at all, that'd be awesome. And God says, God says to him, go, exclamation point. This man is my chosen instrument, listen to this, my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and to their kings and to all the people of Israel. And I'll show him how much he must suffer. So Paul gets his call, right? Essentially, God's call on his life was to be the one that administered or stewarded this great mystery to the Gentiles and to their kings and to the people of Israel. Paul is the administrator of God's great mystery. At that point in time, Ananias had no idea that the Gentiles were going to be included in this great movement of God. No one did. It was a mystery. Yet Paul was given the task to steward and administer this great mystery of grace. Right? And so he stops for a minute after saying, hey, wait, I've been in prison. I'm in prison for you guys. I want you to understand why. God gave me this thing to tell you. And to tell the Jews. So both of you groups, listen. Listen. 
I am the administrator. And he says this, it was revealed to me. In other words, Paul's not making this up. He didn't just write it and say, you know what, this would be a really great story. God breathed it to him as we have scripture is today. God revealed it to him as scripture is revealed through the hands of men, right? So he says this, it was given to me for you that the mystery made known to me by revelation only, right, that I've already told you about briefly. So all that stuff in chapter one and two, this is what God told me to tell you. So listen, you are now one. God's mystery has been lifted, and now together we are one in Christ, meaning Gentile. That means all of us in this room, this great promise of God's redemptive plan from Adam all the way through the end of time has included you and is now thrust wide open. And Paul's job was to tell the world. So he stops. He says, before I pray, understand my role that God gave me to tell you about this. So Paul is a great administrator and steward of God's great mystery. Let's look at this revelation one step farther. He takes it a little deeper and he's going to tell us how God has kind of revealed that through history and to him. So he goes on in verse 4 to say this. In reading this to them, in reading this, excuse me, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. So in reading this letter, right, what I'm telling you, you'll be able to understand the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, but was been revealed by the Spirit of God through the holy prophets and apostles. So Paul says, all that I'm telling you, right, and have told you for these past two chapters has been a mystery. Why? Because the generations before you didn't know about it. It's what I mentioned where we started. God's move and redemptive plan in history was always just one step in front of the Jewish people to lead them down the way. He was their God. And so God revealed a moment at a time of his plan and workings to the Jewish people, whether it be through, um, through, it be through Abraham or through Moses in the desert or through all these pieces, these judges and these kings and David and Solomon. God was always re- re- revealing his plan one step at a time, but never fully revealed. Why is that? Well, it's all part of the great mystery, but most likely because God leads people that way. He never usually fully discloses his individual plan for us. We have to trust him, right? If God showed us the beginning and end of our life and every day and how it was numbered and what it looked like, what would we rely on him for? I already know that on Thursday of next week, I'm going to go down here and I'm going to get $100 from this guy. It's going to work out great. I don't need to trust the Lord, right? God's re- so God in his infinite, incredible ways sort of led the faithless Israelites step by step by step by step. And in previous generations had never revealed this great mystery, although there were nuggets along the way, right? Great passages in Isaiah 6, Isaiah 9, Daniel, uh, some of the great Psalms that have this messianic kind of heartbeat to them. All of the movement of scripture and redemptive plan is leading us to Jesus. But in those moments, they had no idea who Jesus was, what he would look like, how it was going to happen. It's why they're all so confused when Jesus comes riding into, uh, into Jerusalem on the back of a baby donkey because they didn't know how all this was going to unfold. They didn't know that Christ wasn't going to establish uh, Israel as this great power to overthrow the Romans. Instead, Jesus dies, not to establish him as some great kingdom, but to literally move and overthrow the kingdom of sin and replace it with the kingdom of light. But all that, as Paul says, was in darkness and not revealed for all these generations. And so what you're hearing, he's actually saying, is brand new. And it's been revealed to me. And it's the great mystery revealed. And the coolest thing about this, right, for Christianity is that there are no secrets. There are no secrets. 
The only secret of Christianity is that at one point in time there was a mystery that is now fully revealed and opened. Everything about Christianity is available to anyone who wants to look and know. The word of God is full of all of it. You don't have to have a separate level to understand. When you look at cults, right, Scientology, or as we mentioned, Mormonism, these things that, are, that play themselves out as cults. There are levels of knowledge that you don't get until you move into another category. They are meant to keep that category in secret so that you don't know what you're fully in until you're in. All of Christianity is flayed open, and it is fully revealed, meaning that if we have a question or a fear or a concern, we can search the totality of God's redemptive plan, and it's right there. Do you want to know what happens when you die? You don't have to be at level, class, level 7, class 6, right? With $200,000 invested in the Vine Community Church before we tell you that in verse, yeah, at level 7, you get a t-shirt. In level 8, you get a watch. In level 10, well, we all leave, right? And you take over. None of that. It's all just open, man. And Paul says, this is the revelation of God. You are living in the greatest time in history. He's basically saying God is, through the prophets and the apostles, these voices of God, he has now opened this. This was a shock to all of them. Do you remember, right, when, uh, when God shows the Peter, the apostle, when he shows what he is doing and Cornelius' his entire household is baptized, his Gentile family, and, and Peter is blown away and so are the others because they got the same Holy Spirit that Peter got? They couldn't believe it. The same Holy Spirit, when Cornelius' household was baptized, descended upon them as it descended on the Jews that believed. It was mind-blowing. Everyone now, as they accept Christ, is one. We are one new family. It's just pretty remarkable. So he goes on to say this. So not only is Paul the administrator, the, the steward of this great mystery, but God has revealed it. And he's revealing it right now in real time in this moment. It's why it's so incredible that Paul spends all this time on there because for you and I, we're like, hey, yeah, we get it. One household, one family, we're all in. But for them, it was just like this, how do we make this shift to where we're all now one? So then he goes on in verse 5, right, to say, this was made known to you in other generations. It wasn't made known to you in other generations, but now it's revealed, Right? And so he says this, he just reiterates in verse 6, this revelation. He's going to give us three quick things, and I'm going to go over them very quick, or that, are, that are really powerful about this mystery revealed. He says, this mystery, right, is through the gospel that the Gentiles now are heirs together with Israel, members of one body, shares together in one promise in Jesus Christ. So you want to know what the mystery is, as I mentioned? He goes, I'm going to tell you right here, the great mystery of the gospel, right, is that the Gentiles are heirs together with the Jews, members together of one body, shares together in one promise. The great mystery of the gospel, and the reason we call it the gospel of grace, is that all who profess faith in Christ have three incredible things in common. He says, one, they are together heirs. We talked a lot about this last week, meaning that is household language. It is family language. When you are an heir, it means you are a part of a family. And inheritance only goes, in those days, it only went to sons and daughters usually to the sons because it was a patriarchal society, but it only went to blood relatives. And inheritance was only due to those that were true members of the family, which means if the Gentiles came in and they were grafted into God's family, but they weren't true members, then all the inheritance would go to the Jewish people, meaning inheritance, meaning God's promises, his grace, his goodness, his saving, full, abundant life, promise of eternal life, all those things that God promises us would be for the Jews and then Whatever's left over, if any, they would disseminate to the Gentiles. But that's not what happens. 
Paul says that through this great mystery, the heirs are now, or the, uh, the Gentiles are now together heirs, which means at the great banquet table of God is this multiracial, multinational, multiethnic, multi-socioeconomic group of people that are all equal and all one because of Jesus' saving work on the cross. Psalm 84 actually says, he, the psalmist says, it would be better to be a servant or a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked because that's how they felt about God was so inaccessible that I would rather just be a servant in his house than to deal with anything out here that was wicked. But the incredible nature of what no one understood is what God was doing with his redemptive plan was he wasn't turning us into servants or slaves, but he was drawing us in to stand and sit at the table of God that we aren't servants, doorkeepers. We aren't lower or some second-class group of people, but we are all one and sit at the table of God. There is not one person in the church of Christ that has a more prominent place than another. Everyone has different roles, right? But not different places. We talked a lot about this last week. The truth of the matter is, there is no pastor, no blogger, no worship leader, no celebrity, anything that's on the cover of Success Magazine that's some pastor somewhere that ever is due a place of more prominence than you are, ever. Paul even identifies himself as the chief of all sinners. You know when Paul went into a town and they would, like, they would treat him holy, you know what he would do? He would typically rip his clothes off and run around in circles. Super weird. But the point was, I am not Jesus. I am not holy. I have got a very specific role. We are all one in Christ. Meaning, I don't care if you've been walking with the Lord for 25 years and the person sitting next to you is day two of a Christian. You are identically part of the family of God. You are not better than them. I don't care what they're still engaged in, what sin they're still wrapped around their heart and mind. If they have been saved and redeemed and rescued by God, they are part of the family and welcome at the table with an equal share of the inheritance. They are sharing in the inheritance. This is you and I, right? This is what's so cool about this. Second thing he tells them is that not together we share as co-heirs, right, with Israel, but we are members together of one body. We know this to be the church. Paul's going to get into this quite a bit later in chapter six or chapter five and six as we talk about the actual body of Christ. But this is the coolest picture, right, that they use this metaphor of the body of which Christ is the head to basically demonstrate that we are all in this great movement together. And we all have a deep and real purpose. Paul talks about it in Corinthians 12 when he says this, 12, 12. He says, the body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though these parts are vary, and they vary in different ways, they form one body, and it is with Christ that we are all baptized in one spirit and into one body, whether Jew or Greek or slave or free. We've all been given one spirit to drink, meaning simply that, listen, I don't care where you come from, I don't care what you've done or where you've been or what awful things you may have in your past. I don't care what you've said or kind of where you grew up or what part of town or what part of the city, what part of the country, what your skin looks like, where you're from. I don't care about any of those things. Every single one of us drinks from the same spirit of God. There is one baptism, one body, one spirit. We do not have the right, the luxury, or even the authority to look down by one hair on somebody that is at the table of God with us. heartbeat of the gospel is death to self, and it begins with that understanding. And for the Jews to have to buy into this, there was going to have to be a whole lot of death to self. And for the Gentiles to buy in, there was going to have to be a whole lot of walking out of the shame that they felt like they lived in for so long. It was this great reckoning. 
We are one body. There are no divisions in the body. Sadly, uh, the Western church has destroyed this concept, right? Denominations, while serving a purpose at times, are really a destruction of the church, right? I mean, they're just basically disagreements by which the body has found other ways to assemble next to people that look and act and live like us. Um, and it's actually done the church a huge disservice. It's one of the things I love about our little community. I mean, there's a lot not to love, but there's a lot to love in the idea that if I were to ask each one of you where you're from, every single one of you would have a different story, right? Um, sometimes when you get caught in denominational cycles, it's like you came here because you were a member of First Baptist Tulsa or you're a member of First Pres, wherever, and you just found the next local church that was kind of identified in the same thing you did, and you just went there and you didn't really care much, but you were a Baptist, and so you had to go to the Baptist, you're Methodist, et cetera, et cetera. This little gathering of people that we have here is a white-hot mess of everybody from every walk of life that was discontent somewhere else, right? Um, every one of us that's gathered here usually is here because we just were restless wherever we were, which makes this kind of hard, right? Because as a body, we don't all act the same, look the same, write the same, think the same, have the same exact theology on all these things, bring all these pieces to the table that look alike, and we all stand together and go, it's nice to be with people that are like me. No, most of the people in the room are actually very different from you. But that is beautiful. And we should constantly, as a church, be pushing and pushing and pushing for diversity, not for the sake of diversity, but for the sake of that is the picture of the body of Christ, right? So finally, he says this last thing, right? So we've got this, the heirs together. We've got this members of one body together. And then finally, he says this, and we are sharers together in the promises of Christ Jesus. It's a really cool picture, this idea of the promises of Christ Jesus. If you remember way back in chapter 2, 12, seems like forever ago, wasn't actually that long ago, he says this. He says, remember, before Christ, this is what Paul says, before Christ, right, at that time, you were separate from Jesus, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenant promises of God without hope and without hope of God in the world. So he said, before Jesus, you didn't have right to any promises of God. You were foreigners, you were aliens, and you were separated from God's covenant of promises. Every single one of you that didn't know Jesus. Yet here he is in verse 12 saying this great redemptive movement, right? This great mystery revealed is that God has brought all of us in and calls us co-partakers in the promises of God. Sometimes when you read the Old Testament, right, you look at it as if you're looking at it as sort of letters and things and stories that are written for a people of a different time in a faraway place in which they aren't really our story. But what Paul's saying here is that we are now, through the grafting of Christ Jesus into the body of Christ, God's promises and his story and his covenant promises are ours. Meaning that all the promises that God makes to the Israelites throughout the Old Testament are still yours. Meaning that everything that God does and the ways that he moves and the ways that he acts and demonstrates his power and grace and love and authority throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament are all fully yours. We are all partakers in God's incredible promises. In his redemptive plan from Adam to the end of time, those promises and who God is, those are for you. When we read the Hebrew scriptures, we read them as ours. It's why the totality of Scripture is so vital. And I told you last week, if you ever end up a church that end up at a church that tells you that the Old Testament is no longer relevant or no longer has a place or is no longer part of our story, politely get up and leave. And when the pastor says, "Hey, why are you going?" you're saying, "I'm just trying to keep myself out of a little heresy." All right? That's all you got to say. Just trying to avoid, trying to avoid a little bit of it. All right? 
It is all God's beautiful, incredible, redemptive story that is now your story and my story. This Gentile story that Paul is telling in Ephesians is your story. This is why you can claim faith in Christ. This is why you have abundant life here on earth and you can close your eyes and know fully that when you die, you'll reside in eternity with the King of Kings because of this great revealed mystery of God in which he was working throughout time to bring you, yes, you, and all of your brokenness and all of your sinfulness and all of who you are into his covenant family. And you did nothing to deserve it. And yet here we are, Not two people, but one people, one body, partakers in the great covenant promises of God. Shares in those promises, together in one body, right? And partners, heirs, siblings, brothers and sisters to the great household of God. It's why we call this thing the gospel of grace. It literally is a gospel of grace for the Gentile hearer. Without it, we aren't rescued, saved, redeemed. Without the great mystery being revealed, we are dead in our sin. But through Christ, God's great revelation of Christ's death and resurrection on the cross, his completing work of victory over sin, his revealing the mystery, his removing the veil, knocking down the the sorek, the outer walls, the Gentiles are now entering into the great place where God resides, right? And that temple, as we learned last week, becomes our hearts, And that temple transfers to the body of Christ, and we now are one people of God. This is your story, and it's powerful. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the reality that is shaped in these words, that the great mystery is fully and truly revealed in Christ. That while we look at this, it may not seem as powerful to us now, but Lord, it is groundbreaking because without this, we are nothing. We are dead in our sin. We are left outside the promises of God. Yet, Lord, what was a mystery is now revealed. There are no hidden secrets in the Christian world. Everything is laid bare and open through the death and resurrection of Jesus, and all the promises that are due your people are now fully ours, which means that we can trust you as provider, as protector, as leader, as caregiver, as savior, as God, as promise keeper, as the ancient of days, as the holy one, the great I am, Emmanuel, the prince of peace, the king of kings, the lord of lords, as Elohim, as Adonai, as El Shaddai, as Jehovah Rapha and Jehovah Jireh, All the names that we worked through this past summer, God, they are all ours because we are your people. We are partakers in your promise, heirs to your great inheritance and members of one body. As we close our time in worship, Lord, press that truth into our hearts that we may know you and experience your fullness. Let's stand together and close our time in worship. have seen salvation from the Lord. 
prepared for all revealed for me to see what once was hidden no longer mystery light has come the glory of our king my eyes have seen the power of the lord his mighty arm rose for all to see he is redemption He's come for you and me. Victory is here, the glory of our King. Good news, great joy, everything is new. Alleluia, everything.
Amen. Let's give the Lord a hand this morning. That is the great promise, right? That with this great mystery revealed, everything is new. All those things that Paul has been called to proclaim are ours in Christ, that we are together heirs, that we are members of one body, and that we are now partakers in the great promises of God. This story is your story. Let it soak into your heart and make it become who you are. Go in peace.